Matthew chapter number 6, verses 12 through 15. Uh, continuing our series on the exposition of Matthew, of course, as the overall book, but then also specifically looking at the Lord's Prayer. So let's look together there at Matthew chapter number 6, and let's begin reading in verse number 12. The Bible says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men in their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, this particular passage and our subject for this evening is that very first phrase found in verse number 12. says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I think it would be accurate and fair to say that no prayer of a redeemed individual would be complete without a confession of sin. Uh, the confession of sin uh, is to be part of the normal prayer life of a believer. Uh, a prayer that is offered up to God who has so miraculously and gloriously and amazingly saved us uh, would be missing something, I think, uh, if it does not seek a pardon for continuing sin. Uh, of course, the Pharisees, in direct opposition to that, would pray in the opposite manner and would have said that they didn't need to pray for the forgiveness of sin because they had already taken care of all of their sin. Of course, we know that that's boasting on the part of the Pharisee. But people that are part of the kingdom of God, people that are part of uh, God's kingdom, they've been redeemed and saved uh, by the blood of the Lamb, certainly know uh, that forgiveness and a need for daily forgiveness certainly is required. Uh, you'll notice, again, what Jesus was teaching here is he's teaching them how to pray. And he says, forgive us our debts. Uh, now, we're going to talk a bit more about what Jesus meant by that, but you understand the Lord himself uh, knew uh, that we would always be, in a sense, uh, in debt or indebted unto him. Uh, there is no way we could ever do enough to earn or to even rise up to a level to say we're worthy or deserving of uh, forgiveness. Uh, but this is the prayer that Jesus is teaching of people who know what it is to have their sins forgiven. Uh, I don't believe an unbeliever could pray a prayer like this. I don't think somebody who doesn't know Christ could pray a prayer like this because there would be no concept of what forgiveness means. And the overall point is, is that Jesus is teaching uh, that unless we have this forgiving spirit, uh, he couldn't forgive us because that should be a mark of who we are. We should be, in fact, forgiving people. Uh, our forgiveness was offered free. It was offered by the free grace of God. Uh, I think it would be the, the height of arrogance for us to believe that a single day could pass in our lives where we don't ask for forgiveness. I think we would be fooling ourselves and filled with pride if we were to say, you know, today I just didn't do anything worthy or needed, needful of God's forgiveness. But the reality is every day uh, we commit things that we need his forgiveness for. 
Jesus himself uh, told uh, onlookers and those that were hearing and even in this prayer that forgiveness can only come from one who can grant forgiveness. Uh, God is the only one that can grant forgiveness. So it is reasonable for us to pray to God and ask God to forgive us our sin. I was thinking today, one of the great truths about forgiveness is that, you know, it's a delight for God to forgive our sins. Now, that's a kind of a deep thought, but I think God's delighted, uh, not in an emotional human sense, so to speak, but when his people ask for forgiveness. And so as we look at this passage and we start with this, for, this first phrase here, and forgive us our debts. We need to keep in mind that the word debt here is, using, is being used in a figurative fashion or a figurative manner. It doesn't mean literally that we are debtors to God in the sense that we owe him something that we're in the process of paying back. Uh, when you're in debt to someone, you have a creditor and you are paying that debt back by whatever the agreed upon, agreed upon means was whether it's monthly or weekly or yearly, whatever the case may be. But what Jesus is meaning here by these debts is that sin, in its very purest form, has a, a resemblance to debt. Uh, debtors that are, in, are bound to someone else. Uh, people that are in debt are bound to others because they have a claim on them. Uh, they have something that they have because that, uh, that person gave them whatever it was, the funds or the item, and it's, they are bound to pay. So Jesus is not teaching that this debt is something that we're paying, and I, I hope I'm making that clear, because there could never be a transaction like that between sinful man and God to where we could be in debt to him that way to where we're paying something back. So we're using this, and Jesus is using this figuratively. So we, why? Because we can't meet the claims of the law, right? Uh, we violate what the law requires. So because we're violators of the law, we are exposed to the penalty. We're guilty, and only God can forgive. And in the same way, only a creditor can forgive a debtor. Uh, if I'm in debt to someone... Only that creditor can forgive that debt that I owe. Um, I can ask for it, but he doesn't have to forgive that debt, but he's the one that has the ability to do that. So debts here uh, is a reference to sin or what we might say offenses against God. Now, only God can forgive sin. We've, we've learned that and we know that. So Jesus is going to teach here that the very measure in which we can expect forgiveness from God is the same level of forgiveness that we should be granting to others. Notice again, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So what does the Bible teach us about how we ought to forgive others? Let's look at some passages tonight. Psalm 18, verses 25 and 26 are the first ones, first ones we'll look at tonight. Psalm 18, verses 25 and 26. It says, With the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful. Let me see if I'm the right one here. 
Yes. Uh, verse, again, let's do it again 25. With the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. With an upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure, thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the forward, thou wilt show thyself forward. So we see the mercy is the very key ingredient to granting forgiveness. It is being merciful to someone who is indebted to us. Uh, Matthew 18, verses 28 through 35, one of the uh, passages in which our Lord was teaching an example of what forgiveness should look like. He gives the illustration of the unforgiving servant. And we're going to pick this up in verse 28. Uh, It says, But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not. Now, remember what had happened here. We didn't read the beginning part of this. This is a person who was forgiven, and instead of going and extending forgiveness to somebody else, he did the exact opposite. That's that's the context here. And it says, and he would not, verse 30, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him and said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. So that is a a powerful truth that Jesus was teaching with that that unforgiving uh, servant. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but Mark 11.25 uh, it says, and when ye stand praying, forgive. If ye have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. So we're seeing this principle. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors. That's the invariable rule by which God dispenses pardon unto his own. A person that comes before God who is unwilling himself or herself to forgive, who's harboring malice and uh, revengeful thoughts in their hearts, how does that person dare come before God and ask for forgiveness? I mean, how could, how could we harbor such hatred towards someone else and then expect we can go to God and ask God to forgive us? That's what Jesus is saying. If, if you're unwilling to show mercy to others, uh, why should I show mercy unto you? Now, realize that, that, that there, are, there, are, there are debts in society and things that happen that have to do with uh, monetary arrangements, things that happen. You know, pe- two people make an agreement. Uh, someone borrows money from us. Um, Jesus is not saying that every one of those monetary things uh, has to be forgiven. But I will tell you this. Uh, there are circumstances where maybe we have done something good for someone. Uh, maybe we have... We have loaned them money. And for some reason, um, they're not able. Uh, They're not able to fulfill the requirement. 
Or maybe some unforeseen thing happens in their life and they weren't planning on it and they ha- they're, they're really uh, having trouble. Um, it would be within the realm of God's mercy, how he showed mercy to us, that we would show mercy to them and maybe even forgive that debt. Um, we really don't have a right to oppress someone when someone can't pay a debt. Um, I think there's, there's this, uh, think about the distress that a family could go through. Think about the distress of a, of a wife and children or, or a widow or an orphan. Um, or maybe uh, someone is doing everything they can. An honest man, a, a man is honestly doing all he can to pay a debt and, and he can't do it. The Spirit of Christ, folks, sometimes would guide us by mercy to say, I'm going to forgive that debt for you. You know, it's not always we having to hold things in a letter of the law just because we have a contract. Uh, there are times when Christian mercy, uh, it should be the ruling factor in this. I think it should be the ruling factor in all things. But Jesus is not saying that every one of these arrangements, so to speak, has to be forgiven without expecting payment. But it is something that Jesus is testing the heart. If I have a heart that's not willing to forgive, do I actually have the assurance, and I think this is key, that God has forgiven me? I mean, we take for granted the fact, well, my sins have been forgiven, and I hope that's the case. I hope you can say that with 100% certainty tonight, but do you have an unforgiving heart? Jesus is no doubt testing his disciples and these hearers by saying, yeah, we all want our debts forgiven, but are we willing to forgive our debtors, people that owe us? Again, forgiveness is, it's, it's hinged upon mercy. There is no forgiveness with God if there's not mercy. So then Jesus leads into the second part of this. And he says, and, lead, and he's going to return back to forgiveness. And this, this passage takes a, an interesting turn. Because instead of talking about forgiveness in three consecutive verses, he stops talking about forgiveness, goes to something else, goes into what uh, can be referred to as a doxology, and then he returns back to forgiveness. But he goes into a new petition about lead us not into temptation. Now, this is very similar to what David prayed in in Psalm 141, verse number 4, about not being led into temptation. We'll talk here in a moment about uh, what this temptation that Jesus was teaching his disciples was really about. But Psalm 141, 4 says, and here this was a psalm of David, he says, Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from the violent man who have purposed to overthrow my goings. Now, David is praying about temptation in a sense of a trial or an affliction. This particular idea that Jesus is teaching here is this temptation uh, that arises out of the sense of of, of something being permitted. Uh, Go over to James chapter 1, and let's look at verse number 13. And because let's get let's establish another truth um, that Jesus says. Because one thing that God does not do is He's not tempting man to sin. Okay, He doesn't tempt man in that manner. James one. Let's read verse twelve. 
And then 13, blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So if Jesus is teaching lead to to pray and lead us not into temptation, what did he mean by temptation? If he didn't mean God's, he's not going to lead us into sin. So he's not saying pray to God that he doesn't lead you into sin. So by comparing scripture with scripture, what is this temptation that Jesus is talking about? This is in the sense of permitting or permission. To, to do not, uh, in the sense of, uh, do not let us suffer or permit us to be tempted by sin. Instead of leading us into sin, he's saying we ought to pray that God would keep us from being tempted to sin. Uh, in, in this, it's, it's implied that God has such control, not over just us, but also the tempter. Folks, don't lose sight of the fact that God is con- in control over Satan. Uh, Satan is not running rampant with no chains attached. Even God has power over the tempter. So the word temptation here has more of a reference to a trial or affliction or anything that tests our virtue. Uh, If this is the meaning, and I believe by the context it is, the, the, the tone of this prayer is, don't afflict us and don't try us. Now, we know that that's part of it because the very next phrase, he says, but deliver us from evil. Okay, so the the original here in this place, it's deliver us from the evil one, from the tempter or from Satan. That's what the idea here is. Don't permit us to be tempted by the tempter, but deliver us from evil. Everybody see that? That's, that's the tone of what Jesus is teaching here. So to be delivered from evil or to be delivered from Satan would include what? We're asking to be delivered from his power. We're asking to be delivered from his traps, his snares, his deceptions, and his temptations. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Now, we know that Jesus himself, when he was talking to the Pharisees in John, he looks at them and he says, you are of your father, the devil. This is in the sense that the very one uh, who is the parent of sin is Satan himself. And Jesus is saying, you ought to pray daily. You ought to pray that you're not led into temptation and that you are kept and delivered from the evil one or evil in general. So it can mean deliver us from Satan, or even more broadly, to deliver us from the various evils and trials which so easily test us every day. Uh, We are, every one of us, to a person here today, are tested by evil every single day. Uh, There's not a day that that the test isn't there. Uh, Life is, is just filled with calamity it's filled with affliction it's filled with tests it's filled with trials it's there's there's evil on every corner and yet that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray to be delivered from and what's interesting here is as we think that he's going to continue 
it's almost as if in the middle of this prayer, he breaks out into what we'll refer to as a doxology. A doxology is defined as a, a, an ascription of praise. He's been talking about forgiving debts, forgiving debtors, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. And then notice what he says. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, in a very practical way, we typically end our prayer with the word what? Amen. But notice there's this, there's this breakout of, of, of praise, but he hasn't even finished the forgiveness aspect of this yet. It's, it's fascinating. So what is this doxology? Uh, a doxology is, is, here is this, it, a prayer that begins with, with supplication, and now it's ending with praise. And what Jesus is saying is that all rule, all might, all honor belongs to God. And the desire of the believer is that all honor and praise and glory would be ascribed unto God. It's his kingdom. It's his power. It's his authority. It's his glory. Folks, I think for every believer here tonight, we all, our whole heart ought to be delighted by the fact that the Lord is supreme. The Lord is sovereign. And the Lord, even in the midst of a dark, dark world, he is still gloriously in control. Even though evil is going to come, even though temptations are going to be there, even though we're going to be afflicted, it's almost as if this doxology breaks out to remind us that in the midst of all of this, don't forget, God is still supreme. It's very helpful. It's helpful to know that in the midst of this darkness, how perfect of a prayer is it that in the middle of the prayer when we're asking God to forgive our debts and we're forgiving our debtors and lead us out of the temptation, we respond by saying, yours is the kingdom. You are the power. You are the glory. It's almost as if Jesus is teaching them, don't, don't fail to see that even in the midst of these things, this is God's kingdom. What a great truth. The kingdom refers to reign. We looked at this last week, or dominion. It's an acknowledgement that God has control over all things and will do and can do all things according to his perfect will. Thine is the power. Power to what? He has the power not only to accomplish his purposes, but to accomplish all that we ask for. You realize we, don't, we ought not pray with doubt in our heart. We ought not pray and, and say, I wonder if God could really deliver me from evil. I wonder if God could really not lead me into temptation. We ought to pray that with confidence. And that's what Jesus is teaching here is that it, it's the power to accomplish what we ask. Folks, you realize when Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. He's re he was referring to just how weak we truly are. I'm not sure we take seriously enough how weak we really are. Our prayer life also often is an indicator of how strong we think we are. Now, I'm not talking about how many hours a day you pray. I'm not talking about the words you use. But you're, remember, prayer is dependence. And if I go through this life and I don't feel like I need to pray to not be led into temptation, or I don't need to pray to be delivered from evil, there might just be something just a little bit amiss in my heart. 
Because in my own power, I cannot be delivered from evil. I can't even deliver my own self from my own sin. That pet sin that you and I have, whatever it is, you realize you can't deliver yourself from that? No matter what steps you take, you cannot deliver yourself from it. We are just that weak. Jesus is telling them, as part of the Lord's Prayer, acknowledge my power to accomplish all those things. Thine is the glory. Glory refers to honor, refers to praise. This is not about our honor, it's about thy glory. It's not about our goodness, it's about God's goodness. God's glory, God's goodness, God's honor is displayed in how he not only accomplishes his purposes, but how he provides for our wants and our needs. You know, every single time God meets one of your needs and answers one of those prayers, he's displaying his glory. Often people say, well, that's an answer to prayer, and it is. But understand something, that every answered prayer is God's glory being displayed. It's a great truth. He has the power to defend us. He has the power to rise up, to raise up kingdoms and to bring kingdoms down. So this doxology or this description of praise is connected with the prayer by the word for. That word for is the signifying word that says all of these things, the reign, the power, the glory of of God is manifested by granting our petitions. So when we ask God to deliver us from evil and lead us not into temptation, when he answers that, the glory of God is being revealed. And ultimately, folks, remember this, that your deliverance from evil is not first and foremost or primarily for your benefit, but rather it's that God's name and his perfection may be revealed. Oftentimes we we say an answer to my prayer is for my benefit. The truth of the matter is the answer to prayer is not for your benefit. The answer to prayer is so that God's name and his perfections might be revealed. We've really got to get the idea out of our mind that really, that it's ever about us. Now, God loves his own. God loves his people. But you realize everything he does, he's doing for his own glory. Every soul he saves, he's saving for his own glory. We reap the harvest of it. We reap the benefits of it. But that wasn't the primary reason. was not so that we could say, hey, I benefited. God saw it my way. No, it was so that his name and his glory might be revealed. So what is Jesus really teaching here? This doxology in the middle of this. He's teaching us what our primary concern ought to be. What is the first and principal thing which we should seek? We should seek his glory. Even our very concerns that are very real today should be lost in the superior glory and honor of His name and His glory. Remember, this entire prayer, the Lord's Prayer doesn't say that you can't ask for things personally. But what He is saying is that we should seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Now, everything we seek for in this life, whether they're temporary or temporal needs or eternal needs... We seek them for the honor of God so that his name and his glory would be seen.
When I ask God to give us this day our daily bread, like we talked about last week, when that bread shows up on my table, it's so that his name would be glorified. It's not first and foremost so that my stomach is filled. It's in order that his name would be glorified. Do you see how when God's glory is revealed, we are recipients, beneficiaries of the benefits. But yet, it's God's name we want promoted. It's his glory we want promoted. He is the first, the last, and now to be what our view is. It's been said that all of our views of this life should be absorbed into one great desire, that Christ may truly be the all in all. Imagine taking all of your needs, all of your temporal desires, all of your eternal needs, and having them all absorbed in the reality that what I really want more than all, more than anything else, is that Jesus Christ would be all in all. Because you know, even in unanswered prayers, God's glory is still being revealed. Oftentimes people say, well, I must be something wrong because God didn't answer my prayer. God is always revealed. But when we approach God with the desire, with our prayers being answered, just because we want them answered, we have the wrong emphasis of prayer. Now you see the word amen there. It's a common word in our our Christian circles. And this is just a little side note here. I thought you might find this interesting. Uh, The word amen comes from a, it's a Hebrew word. That it has a Hebrew origin, which comes from a verb, which signifies to be firm, secure, to be true and faithful. We used to just teach and hear it this way, that amen is just an agreement. Well, that's not exactly the whole intent or the whole meaning of the intent of the word. The word means to be firm, secure, to be true and faithful. It's a word that expresses consent, agreement, but it's also a word that speaks of great certainty. When I say amen at the end of a prayer, I'm not just saying amen, I hope this is, we're saying amen with certainty. Why? Because we're praying to the God of all power, the God of all glory, who can do all things according to his perfect will. So every ascription of praise, it is proper to end a doxology with thine is the kingdom, thine is the glory, Amen. We see that very commonly. Now let's quickly move on to these last few verses. Verse 14, notice the word if. For if ye forgive men their trespasses. That word if is very vital to understanding. If ye forgive or if ye pardon. Pardon what? Men their trespasses. Trespasses are offenses. They're faults. Here's a certainty. Everyone in this room has been offended by someone else. Some may be more recently than others. You have been deeply offended. You have been deeply hurt. He says, if ye forgive, if you pardon their offenses, even when they've injured you, this is a constant requirement that's found in the Bible. Matthew 18, 22, Jesus himself says we should forgive even if the offense is committed 70 times seven. Now, he doesn't mean that that's the limit 490 times. 
But he says, if that same in thing continues to happen over and over and over and over and over again, you continue to forgive. I would venture to say most believers have never really taken that seriously. Because every one of us has a limit of how many times we'll forgive. Some maybe their magic number is three. I'll give that person three chances. Some people are only second chance people. You get two chances with me, and then the rest of it, if you do that again, that's it. But do you know, biblically speaking, what Jesus was teaching is that there should not be a limit to how many times you forgive. Now, this is real easy to say on a Wednesday night in this little building here, that this is how you ought to forgive. It's a whole other thing when you actually have to forgive in the real world. So this is now, biblically speaking, this is truly meant for especially when a person asks for forgiveness. Now you realize when someone asks you forgiveness, uh, you, you really are, uh, you are required to grant that forgiveness. Now, if, even if a person doesn't ask for forgiveness, we should still at the very least treat that person kindly. We should not be harboring malice. We shouldn't be speaking ill of that person. We should still be ready to do good unto that person. And we should always, always, always be ready to declare him forgiven when he asks for it. There is a biblical pattern that a person who has offended us is supposed to ask for forgiveness. But what about that individual that never does? How should we treat them? We should still treat them in a manner that still shows the glory of God. Why? Because we've been forgiven. Folks, remember, every reason why we're told to forgive others is because of what? Because I have forgiven you. Do you realize, do, do, do I realize how offensive our sin is to a holy God? Because once you grab onto that concept, <laughs> there is no greater offense than sinful man towards God. Whatever someone in this life does to you will never compare to the sin and the offense and the trespasses of us towards a holy God. So until somebody can exceed our level of offense to God, that's when we can stop forgiving. That's pretty convicting. Because no one will ever offend us as badly as we offended a holy God. So when are we allowed to say, no more forgiveness for you? We're never allowed to really say that. So then look at verse 15. He, or at the end of verse 14, he says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, he gives two sides of the coin here. Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, there has been many, many controversial thoughts made on this about what was the, what was the reference here. Some have taken this to mean that uh, someone that doesn't forgive loses their salvation. Uh, this is not the context of what's happening here. This is an enforcing action. And what, what Jesus is, is really teaching here is that if we truly are those who've been forgiven, uh, we must be forgiven people. Uh, he, really is, he really is putting it right there that if you really have a heart that has no desire to be a forgiving person, is it possible that you've even been forgiven? 
Now, when we're wronged, okay, when someone does something wrong to us, we often think about that's a bad thing that happened. But do you realize that when something bad happens to us, it's actually an opportunity of judging our own heart as to whether or not we have truly been forgiven. When someone offends you, instead of saying, why did someone offend me? Why is someone trespassing against me? It gives us an opportunity to test our own heart of forgiveness. So when that opportunity presents itself and you're faced with somebody who's offended you, you have that opportunity right there to test your own heart and say, do I have a heart of forgiveness? Because when I understand that if I'm a recipient of the pardoning and forgiveness of God, it ought to be something very, very sweet to our souls to forgive someone else. Now, folks, I'm not standing here making, making light of this and saying that this is easy to do. I, I, I think I've said this. I think besides having a proper prayer life, the two hardest things in the Christian life are praying properly and forgiving others. Now, notice what I said, in the Christian life, okay? I'm not talking about people in general, but if you, if you pin most Christians down, you say, what's your greatest struggle being a believer? Most people will tell you, my prayer life and forgiving other people. Isn't it interesting that part of the Lord's prayer is based upon having a proper prayer life and also forgiving others. And the basis for our forgiveness is not that we weren't truly wronged. The basis is those offenses are meant to test our own heart. We learn just how sweet our pardon from God is when we extend forgiveness to somebody else. Again, not, this is not easy to do. So we conclude by simply looking at what Jesus is teaching here. And the, the summary of this is, is, I think clearly Jesus is teaching that we ought to be readily able and willing to forgive anyone who has done us wrong. Why? Because he's forgiven us. We should be merciful to people who are indebted to me. Right? So even if we have something on someone, and I don't mean that in the way that came across, but if, we, if somebody owes us something, we shouldn't use that as a means to hold that over their head. We still ought to be looking with mercy and saying, you know what, there may come a point in time when I need to just forgive this debt. I, I could tell you stories I've heard of families that were torn apart by something this simple to where a believer loaned money to another person in their family. That person did all they could. They couldn't do it. And instead of just saying, you know what, let's just forgive it. It just split the family in two. Now, did that, did that creditor have a right to demand? Did that family member have a right to demand payment? They had a right but understand something, we had no rights. We had no right to the forgiveness of sin that God granted us. And what greater way to demonstrate our own forgiveness than forgiving others? One of the great prayers of our heart, I believe, as we conclude this is that God, as you forgive me, 
teach me how to forgive all others who are in some sense in debt to me. They've wronged me. I've often been very frightened to pray that type of prayer. Because there's in our mind and in our hearts, we, we all, I think, I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm making a false assumption here. I think we all have somebody in the back of our mind that we probably need to forgive and we haven't. We're waiting for a condition. We're waiting for something to happen. I've said this many, many times. And of all Christian, of all Christian trouble that I, that I counseled over the years, and I'm, I'm speaking to myself, so don't take this as I'm telling you this. One of, the, one of the most destructive things is unforgiveness of an offense towards us. It's destructive. And, but it's hard. That's why we don't have, you don't have the power to forgive the slightest offense apart from God. So Jesus is teaching very clearly about this forgiveness, forgiving us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So I hope tonight that'll be a help to you. I hope it'll be a challenge to us as we think about it and that uh, sir, the Lord will bless uh, the teaching of his word tonight. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. I appreciate you being here on a Wednesday and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on Sunday morning, our regular schedule Sunday. And I look forward to seeing you then. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this teaching from your word. And Lord, I know my own heart has been challenged. It's challenged by the own circumstances and situations in my own heart and in my own life. But Lord, I cannot help but think about how every one of the redeemed has had the greatest offense that could ever be done, forgiven and pardoned. Our sin was offensive to a holy God. Yet through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins have been forgiven. They've been put away. There is no more, uh, there, there is no more penalty coming for it for those that are in Christ. They've been removed as far as the east is from the west. And give us that type of a heart a heart that is forgiving. Lord, help us not to be, make excuses as to why we can't forgive. Lord, I realize there are very difficult situations people are going through. But Lord, change our spirit, change our heart to make us willing to forgive. Lord, that bitterness that so grows within us can be so destructive. And Father, I pray that through the power of the Spirit, uh, we will leave here tonight edified and reminded of not only the power of prayer, but the power of God to deliver us and to grant us the ability to forgive those who've offended us. May we desire to do all things so that Christ's glory and honor and name would be manifested and that he truly would be our all in all. We thank you, we praise you. It's in Christ's name and for his sake I do pray, amen.